Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I get to that third column, I didn't have an understanding of what the what part of self was affected, so I just skipped over that. You see. But in the twelve and twelve he gives us some real good information about self and what makes self tick. And I always sponsor the people that I sponsor, I ask them to go to twelve and twelve, read that information, get a working knowledge of those basic instincts of life so that we can better do the four step when we get to it. I like to talk about these basic instincts that Joe's referring to really in step three because they can show us why we really need to take step three. And I think we've got to face the fact that when Bill wrote the big book, 1937, 38, and 39, Bill was not a great spiritual giant. Bill was not a great student of human nature. Bill was a night school lawyer and a New York City stock speculator. Yet he was able to write one of the most spiritual books the world's ever seen when he wrote the big book. You know, surely, surely, God used Bill's hand to do so. But some years later, Bill began to realize that there was some information that he had become privy to in a period of years that if he could get it out to the fellowship, it would make it easier to work the steps according to the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. So he wrote that series of essays in the 12 and 12 on the steps. Now, we do not believe that you can work the program out of the 12 and 12. You just can't do that. There's no directions on how to work it in the 12 and 12. And that's one reason people love it so much. They can get in there and philosophize and dance around and never do anything. But there's some information that Bill had learned through working with many, many alcoholics, through working with some of the greatest spiritual minds and psychiatric minds in the world that he gave to us, which really helps us work these steps. And this part that we're talking about, these three basic instincts of life, he taught me on about two pages more about what makes me tick than I had learned in 40 years of living up until that time. And we're going to go through them just very briefly here. And it shows us why we really need to work the three. It's also going to set us up for step four. He said these three basic instincts of life are God-given. And that all human beings are born with these things. He said they're absolutely necessary for survival of the human race. And without these three basic instincts of life, there would be no survival of our race. He broke it down into the social instinct, the security instinct, and the sexual instinct. And he said under the social instinct, he said all human beings are born with the desire to be liked, accepted, and respected by other people. He said all human beings are born with the desire to come together in groups with other people. And he said if we didn't have those desires, if we didn't join together in groups with other people, that the world would eventually go into a dog-eat-dog situation, complete anarchy would reign, and under those conditions the human race would simply fail to survive. So these desires that you and I have to be liked and accepted and respected by other people, these desires that we have to come together in groups with other human beings, they're God-given, they are a natural thing, and they are necessary for our survival. He used several terms under that. He talked first about companionship. Companionship is nothing more than wanting to belong or to be accepted. So many of us were born raised on the outside of the crowd looking in, wanting to be a part of and knew we could not be. He talked about prestige. 
prestige is wanting to be recognized or be accepted as the leader of the group. And the world needs leaders. Somebody's got to make decisions. You know, I guess back in the old caveman days, somebody had to say, Mary Jo, get behind that tree with your club. Billy Jack, you get behind that bush with your spear, and Joe and I will run this sucker through here. And Well, somebody has to do that. And most human beings will take one of two directions. Either let me be a part of, or let me be the leader of. And in either case, it's going to be based upon what other people think of us. If they like us, accept us, and respect us, we can become a part of those things, whatever it is we're wanting to do. He talked about self-esteem. Self-esteem is what we think of ourselves. And it's usually high or low. If we think that other people like us and accept us and respect us, we feel pretty good about ourselves. But if we think other people don't like us and accept us and respect us and reject us, if they do so, or if we even think they do so, we feel pretty lousy toward ourselves. Self-esteem. He talked about pride. I'm glad I got in the habit of going to the dictionary and looking, looking words up. I always thought pride is something you were supposed to have. And as a young boy growing up, all I ever wanted to be was a man who walked tall with pride and a little bit sideways like John Wayne did, you know. <laughs> but when I went to the dictionary and looked that word up, I found out I don't particularly want that pride. It's an excessive and unjustified opinion of oneself. We either think too well of ourselves, we think too little of ourselves, and in most cases is absolutely not true anyhow. He talked about personal relationships. That's nothing more than our relations with other human beings and the world around us. He talked about ambitions. Ambitions are the plans for the future, to be liked, to be accepted, to be respected, to be a part of things that we plan for the future. Now, if you want to be liked and accepted and respected by the world and the people in it, the first thing you've got to figure out is what is it they want from me. And as kids growing up, we're usually taught those things by society, by what they teach us and by, by what we see happening. And one part of the world may be to have a good education. Another part of the world is to be a large landowner. Another part of the world is to have a large family. It could be any number of things. It'll vary in different parts of the world. And as we grow up, then we begin to try to determine what we need to be. And we set goals for ourselves. And if you're going to reach the goal, if you're going to get the good education, if you're going to be the large landowner, whatever it might be, you're going to have to work toward it. You can't just sit on your duff and be a bum and be liked and accepted and respected by other people. And I don't think you and I would do the work necessary to reach those goals that we set for ourselves if we didn't get a reward for doing so. The great reward we get comes at the moment of successful completion of the goal. Bill said it in his story when he said, I had arrived. My God, how many of us have set that goal? Literally worked our tails off for years. We get there, they pat us on the back and they say, oh, Joe, you're a fine fellow. You're a smart individual. You're really, really a good man. And there's a feeling that comes over us, which is one of those indescribably wonderful feelings. We love that praise. The only thing wrong with it, though, is just a temporary feeling. Hell, you know, sooner get the recognition and the praise that comes from the successful completion of the goal. And you look around and you say, well, is this all there is to it? And you set another goal. And you work and you work and you strive and you strive. And you reach the new goal. You get the recognition like you want it. But it doesn't last long and we set another goal. It seems to create within we human beings an insatiable desire for more and more recognition, more and more acceptance, more and more power. And are not giving it to us fast enough. We're not getting it the way we think we ought to get it, so we start taking shortcuts. <clears throat> we start doing a little lying, a little conning, a little manipulating, 
a little stepping on other people's toes and climbing on their backs, and the instant we do so, we hurt other people. They, in turn, retaliate against us and create pain and suffering for us. Yeah, the book's right when it says that a life run on self-will can hardly ever be a success, because under those conditions, we're always in collision with people, places, and things. He talked about the security instinct. And he said all human beings are born with a desire to be secure in the future. He said, if we didn't have that desire, we wouldn't provide the food, the clothing, the shelter that we need in order to be able to survive in the future. In our next winter season, we would simply freeze to death. The next drought, we would starve to death. Now, I know everybody in AA tries to live one day at a time. But I also noticed about everybody in here has got an insurance policy of some kind. And that's what the insurance policy is for, to protect us in the future. He said, all human beings are born with that desire. Now, if you're going to be secure in the future, once again, You've got to decide, well, what is it I need in order to be secure? And this will vary in different parts of the world, too. Maybe one part of the world you just need $4. Another part of the world you need 4000 Another part of the world you need $4 million. Another part of the world you need 192 coconuts, whatever it is that they use to measure, trade, and barter with. And we set our goal. And we begin to work toward that goal. And if you're going to reach the goal, you're going to have to work at it. You can't sit on your duff and be a bum and be secure tomorrow. At the same time, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. We can't blow everything we got today and be secure tomorrow. And I don't think you and I would do the kind of work necessary to be secure tomorrow if we didn't get a reward for doing so. And once again, the great reward comes at the moment of successful completion of the goal. How many of us have set that goal for the new bicycle, for the new dress, for the new car, for the new home? for the new business, for the new piece of property. And we work and we work and we strive and we strive and a day that sucker's paid off and nobody can touch it. My God, what a great feeling that is. Hell, when I was a kid growing up, hardly anybody owned their own home. Nearly everybody rented. And once in a great while, somebody would get enough money together to make a down payment on a little four-room house. And they would pay and pay and pay and pay and pay. And the day that sucker's paid off, they call in all the neighbors and we celebrate and we have a party and we end up burning the mortgage at such a great deal. But the only thing wrong with it, you no sooner get the thing and have it paid off and it becomes yours, and you look around, you say, well, the hell's bells. <clears throat> is this all there is to it? I'm driving a Chevrolet, and he's got a Cadillac. This guy over here, he's in a Brooks Brothers suit, and I bought mine at Kmart. So on, so on. And we set another goal. <clears throat> and we work, and we work, and we strive, and we strive, and we reach the new goal, and it feels good. It doesn't last long. We set another goal. And it creates an insatiable desire within we human beings for more and more and more and more of these things. We're not getting them fast enough. They're not giving them to us the way we think they ought to, so what do we do? We take shortcuts. We lie. We cheat. We con. We manipulate. And the instant we do that, we hurt other people. They, in turn, retaliate against us and create pain and suffering for us. Plain little life run on self-will can hardly ever be a success. The third basic instinct he talked about is a sex instinct. you got to get a drink of water on it. You've got to have a drink of water before I start on sex. <laughs> he said all human beings are born with a desire to have sex. He said it may get turned off by bad teachings or bad happenings. But he said all human beings are born with a desire to have sex because we don't have sex. We cannot reproduce ourselves. And if we don't reproduce ourselves, then sooner or later the human race is going to fail to survive. Now, just like the other two. The fulfillment of the social instinct, the fulfillment of the security instinct, and the fulfillment of the sex instinct, you're going to have to work at it. 
Hell, you can do more work in three minutes of sex, if you can last that long, than you do all day digging a ditch. Don't you older guys remember how it used to be when we got through with it? My God, you just fall over sideways, the sweat's just pouring off of you. You feel like you've died, gone to heaven, come back two or three times, and I don't think we would do that kind of work if we didn't get a reward for doing so. Gets excited, doesn't he? And the great reward comes at the moment of successful completion of the sex act. One of the greatest feelings a human being can experience, not only physically but also emotionally. The only thing wrong with it, though, you no sooner get through with sex and experience those emotions, and it's just a temporary feeling. It doesn't last very long. And you look around, and next thing you know, you, you get to thinking about doing it again. And then the next thing you know, you get to thinking about doing it in different ways. And then you get to think about doing it in different positions. And after a while, you get to thinking about doing it with different people. And the next thing you know, we're doing it at the wrong time, the wrong way, with the wrong people. And the instant we do so, we create pain and suffering for others. They, in turn, retaliate against us and create pain and suffering for us. You know, if every human being on earth today could fulfill these three basic instincts at the level that God intended for us to, there would be no conflict on earth today. But all human beings, sooner or later, will overdo in one or more of these areas because they are so pleasurable, we simply cannot keep from doing those things that ends up creating pain and suffering for others. Any life run on self-will can hardly ever be a success. Now, the little picture we got up there, you see the three basic instincts of life, and then coming out of that is a little circle called self. That's what makes up self-will. That's what causes us to do the things that end up hurting other people. The very things that God gave us that's necessary for our survival are also the very things that will destroy us left on self-will. Coming out of self-will, you see another circle called wrongs. It's another word you got to look at. Now, somewhere we got the idea in AA that the word wrongs means a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items. But you go to the dictionary and look it up, and you'll find several definitions. One definition of the word wrong is incorrect judgment of other people. A little later on, we're going to find out that's just exactly what a resentment is. Another definition of the word wrong is incorrect believing. A little later on, we're going to find out that's what most of our fears are. Another definition of the word wrong are the harms and the hurts that we do to our fellow human beings. It's very easy to spot a selfish, self-centered human being. They will always display three common manifestations of self that are always madder than hell. Damn him and damn her and by God I'll show them they're not going to treat me that way and blah, 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 blah. Selfish, self-centered human beings are always scared to death. Can't depend on God. Can't depend on other human beings. If we're an alcoholic reaching the end of our alcoholism, we can't depend on ourselves any longer, and we're running around absolutely scared to death all the time. Selfish, self-centered human being is always doing things that ends up hurting other people. And we hurt those other people, then we got to suffer the retaliation from that, plus we got a conscience, and the guilt and the remorse associated with those things just literally eat us up. There's no way that a selfish, self-centered human being can be happy. Because our mind is always filled with resentments and fear and guilt and remorse. And under those conditions, eventually, we want to feel better. We start thinking about taking a drink. And the next thing you know, we go right back to drinking again. This is the greatest information I've ever seen in my life that explains to me what causes me to do the things that I do and explains to me why left on self-will, 
I don't stand a chance for peace of mind and happiness necessary for good continual sobriety. I've got to make this decision to let God direct my thinking. And if God directs it, then I'll fulfill these basic instincts at the level that God intends for it to be. And then I'm not in conflict with people, places, and things, or even my own conscience, Joe. Go to page 62. We're going to take a break here in just a minute. It won't be long. It says, uh, page 62, it says, Selfishness and self-centeredness. That we think is the root of our troubles. We're driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. But we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later put us in a position to be hurt. Alcoholism, I, self, and me. We made decisions based on the satisfaction of these basic instincts, which later put us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic, an extreme example of self-will, run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us, and God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us have had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would like to. Neither could we reduce ourselves into as much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. Can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. So he told us how it works, and this is why it won't work, and now he's going to tell us how it really works. He said, this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. You know, if this is a God-directed world, and everything I read leads me to believe that's true, then those of us who have been self-directed, and those of us who have been dying trying to direct everything and everybody around us, we've been trying to do God's job for him. We're not God. We've just been playing at being God. We're going to have to quit doing that if we want any peace of mind and happiness. He said, next, tells us what to do next. Next, we decide that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He's not our suggester, our director. He's, he's got his word back now, and it'll be director of directions the rest of the way through the book. <laughs> so he is a principal, we're his agents. He's the father, we're his children. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant art to which we passed to freedom. You know, I almost missed that simple little idea. The way I used to pray was like this. God gave me this, and God gave me a new car, and God gave my wife back. God helped me make more money. God do this. God do that. I used God like he would an errand boy. Send him out and take care of stuff, you know. And I, sometimes I would say, if, if I forgot to ask you for something, well, give that to me also. <laughs> well, you can see how that don't work. And after I've been sober for a while, I got to reading that other big, big book, and there's a story up there in front of it. It said he worked for six days, and then he rested. Now, to my knowledge, he'd never go back to work anymore. <laughs> it looks to me like there's going to be any work being done around here. It's going to be me. Because he is, he is the principal. We're the agent. He's the father. We're the children. He's the boss. I work for him. Most good ideas are simple. And I almost missed that simple little idea. And this concept of letting God be the director is the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we're going to pass to freedom. We're building a wonderfully effective spiritual structure. Step one, willingness, was the foundation. Step two, believing, was the cornerstone. And now he tells us it's going to be an arch, and we're going to pass through it to freedom. 
And the keystone of that arch, in the old, old arches they used to build, there was a certain stone right up in the top called the keystone. If it was cut right, the other stones leaned against it, and the keystone supported the arch. If it was faulty, it would fall out. The keystone of the arch through which we're going to pass to freedom is a simple little idea. Those of us who have been self-directed all of our lives, we're making a decision to let God be the director. It's just that simple. Let God be the director. Later on, we're going to see some more stones go in place as we build this structure. Step by step by step, we build it. Step by step by step, we get positive results from it. There's nothing negative about any of these steps. On page 63, it tells us some good, positive things that's going to take place here if we make this decision. See, when we sincerely took such a position, the one on page 62, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. See, I got to do his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. See, I've always been a taker. Takers are losers, you know. Not only in AA, but in life. Takers are losers. And I was, I was a loser. Today, I'm trying to see what I can contribute to life. He said, as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter, we were reborn. And God, I used to hate that idea about being reborn. <laughs> there was a little church down the road from where I lived at that time, and these guys would come up there on Monday night and knock on my door, want to talk to me about being reborn. You know what I did for them, didn't you? I run them off. I said, hey, guys, this is Monday Night Football. You're interfering in my drinking and my football game. Get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. That's what I, I didn't understand. As I read in that other book when I got sober after a while, there was a story in there. This guy's name was Nicodemus. Dumber than a sack of hammers. Just like me. Because whenever he heard about being, that guy talk about being reborn, he went to him and said to him, you mean, when you talk about being reborn, you mean I've got to go back into my mother's womb and be reborn? I did see him looking at him and say, man, didn't you go to school? Didn't you go to the university? Aren't you educated? Don't you know you can't do that? When I'm talking to you about being reborn, I'm talking about the renewing of your mind. Old ideas cast aside, new ones accepted. I could do that. And I couldn't wait now. I'm ready. The book said we were now at step three. We're really, in action is a magic word, and alcohol is anonymous, and in life. And so I couldn't wait to get down there, now that I understood this a little better, I couldn't wait to get down to that church on Sunday morning to do this third step that they talked about. Because I knew what they were doing down there on Sunday morning, just about 11 o'clock. So I waited till Sunday. Don't know why I waited till Sunday, but I did. And I got there about two or three minutes before 11. Well, I won't get there too early. I might hear something that would help me. <laughs> so sure enough, I got there two or three minutes before 11, and sure enough, that old preacher down there said, those of you who want to do the third step prayer, basically, come on down here and let's do it. And this is what I did. Many of us said to our makers, we understood him. God, I offer myself to you to build with me and do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those that I would help of your power, your love, your way of life. May I do your will always. So we thought well before taking this step, making sure that we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him.
Now, I don't know what happened that Sunday morning. I just don't know. Not capable of knowing. But I do know this. From that Sunday morning until this morning, my life hasn't been the same. It's, all, it's as if I've been walking on the dark side of the street, and all of a sudden, after the third step, I'm on the sunny side of the street. Just like that. And my life hadn't been the same. People began to come back into my life. My wife began to come back. My daughter began to come back. I began to get sobriety and stay sober. My life began to change. And all those things that I ever dreamed about, morning has happened in my life as of today. Everything. Everything. Thank God for the third step prayer. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to Him. I think the word utterly means completely, wholeheartedly, the whole ball of wax. I hope you don't make the mistake I did. The first time I took this step three, I got down on my knees, which I very seldom did in those days, and I said, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt, so on, so on, so forth. And as I finished it up, I said, now this applies to my alcohol. <laughs> don't fool with my sex life. Stay out of my money. I can handle that too. God probably said, what an order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> I said, you take, the, you take the alcohol and I'll take care of the rest of it. Well, today I realize the fallacy in that is that God probably doesn't even drink. He doesn't want the alcohol. He wants me. And he wants all of me. Just think, if he directed my thinking in all areas, maybe my thinking would become better, not only regarding alcohol, but sex, money, and everything else. If my thinking becomes better in all areas, then surely my actions are going to become better, and surely my life's going to become better in all areas too. We're going to ask you to do a favor for us, and just for me mainly. Uh, you don't have to do it if you don't want to, but I'd like for you to reach out and Take the hand of those who are sitting next to you and just kind of hold hands a minute. <clears throat> and I'm going to read this prayer sentence by sentence. And as I read it, we'll ask you to repeat it after me. It said, God, I offer myself to thee. God, I offer myself to thee. To build with me and do with me as thou wilt. To build with me and do with me as I will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Relieve me of the bondage of self. That I may better do thy will. That I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties. Take away my difficulties. That victory over them may bear witness. That victory over them may bear witness. To those I would help of thy power. To those that I would help of thy power. Thy love. Thy love. And thy way of life. And thy way of life. May I do thy will always. May I do thy will always. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You'll never have to worry about step three. You've just taken it. <laughs> Let's take about a 15-minute break, and we're going to the bottom of page 63. It tells us there we found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. And of course, we always recommend on step three we take it in the company of other human beings. Uh, people that I uh, sponsor, I insist they take it with me for two reasons. Number one, if they take it with me, then I know they have taken it. That's the only way I know for sure. But the real reason is that every time we do it, it has a deeper meaning for me and means more in my own personal life. 
plus. We're meant to live, we're tri-dimensional creatures. We're meant to live with God. We're meant to live with our fellow human beings. We're meant to live with ourselves. And we pray in the company of other human beings, we're beginning to fit ourselves back together as God intended for us to be in the first place. And this is our first real opportunity to do that by taking step three with other human beings. Way back in the beginning, when they were in Dr. Bob's house, when the newcomer got ready to make their surrender, which is our step three, four or five of the older members would take the newcomer upstairs in one of the bedrooms. They would all kneel, and the newcomer would make their surrender. And after it was over, the older members would vote on how well he surrendered. <laughs> if he didn't surrender good enough, they'd make him do it again, too. So it worked out real good. Okay, we're through with step three now. We've made our decision. Now let's see what we're going to do from here on. Let's go to the bottom of page 63 and start out right there. It says next. That's right after three. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step which is a, a personal house cleaning, which many of us have never attempted. Though our decision, step three, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by strenuous effort to face and be rid of those selves and ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. Well, the first thing we like to look at as we progress from step three on is the time element between step three and step four. Now, we hear this question asked all over the country. How long should you wait after you've done step three before you start on step four? And we hear all kind of answers. You know, we've heard some people say, well, maybe you ought to wait 30 days. And we've had others say, maybe you ought to wait 90 days. And, and uh, we heard a, a so-called professional in the field counseling people to wait a minimum of two years between three and four so that they could be sure and have their mind cleared up and do step four really perfect. And our question, our, our question back to that professional was, how damn many people have you killed with that statement? Uh, you know, we're trying to find a way to live where not only can we be sober, but we can be peaceful and happy and free, where we can have a little serenity and peace of mind. And the longer we put off, the longer we procrastinate on step four, the longer we're going to be restless, irritable, discontented, filled with shame, fear, guilt, remorse, worry, and all the good stuff that goes with it. And under those conditions, sooner or later, the mind wants to feel better. And it begins to think about that sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by a couple of drinks. Next thing you know, we think we can drink, and we go right back to drinking again. I don't know how long I could go under those conditions. Frankly, I'm not interested in finding out. The book tells us when we ought to take it. It said three is not going to do us any good unless we follow it up at once by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of those things in ourselves which have been blocking us. So I think what the book is saying, as soon as you're through with three, you're ready to start on four. Now, knowing that, and knowing that if we don't get on with four, we might get drunk over it, why would we still tend to procrastinate and not want to do step four? I think there's two or three reasons behind it. Some of the older members tend to play king off the mountain with step four. And they tell the newcomer, by God, you just wait till you get step four. Blah, 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 blah. Just literally scare them to death. <laughs> Let us be the first to say today, if we do step four the way the big book says to do it, there's nothing to be afraid of, period. It's not going to be a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items. And there's nothing to fear in step four. 
Knowing that, why would we still tend to procrastinate? Well, I think one of the main reasons is the instructions on how to do it are on page 64, but not understanding how Bill wrote. For years, we didn't understand how to do step four according to the big book. So in our confusion, we got over into step five and we read something about sharing all your life story. And we said, oh, that's what they wanted us to do, that in four is write our life story. And that's what I did at the beginning. Probably wasn't very important to other people. It must have been to me because there was 92 pages in it when I got on. <laughs> I took it to another poor, suffering alcoholic and asked him to read it. And he read it and said, not very pretty, is it? And I said, no. He threw it in the waste paper basket. He said, you'll never have to be that way again. I learned nothing to contribute to my alcoholism by writing my life story. And as I look back now, I realize 95% of my life story doesn't have anything to do with my alcoholism. The fact that I was born in 1929, I don't think it's got anything to do with my alcoholism. may have had something to do with somebody else's, but not mine. <laughs> the fact that I went into service immediately after high school, served a hitch in the Army, I don't think it's got anything to do with my alcoholism. The fact that I was married at age 21, I don't think it's got a thing to do with it. But i tell you what it did do. The 95% that had nothing to do with it very effectively covered up the 5% that did, and I learned nothing to contribute to my alcoholism from my life story. So in our confusion, somebody in Minneapolis, Minnesota wrote a four-step inventory guide. We got the Minneapolis guide, we combined it with a big book, and we got more confused yet. <laughs> somebody in Dallas, Texas wrote one. We took the Dallas guide, combined it with a Minneapolis guide, combined it with a big book, and got more confused yet. Uh, we saw one one time coming out of Canada. Nothing wrong with Canada, but that's where it came from. Had 20 pages in it. And if you wasn't crazy as hell before you took it, you sure as hell would be when you were through with it. It was one of those. All the time, the instructions have been right here in a book. And we just couldn't see them because we didn't understand how Bill writes. Now, there's two things that you've got to understand about this if you're going to do it the way the book says. Number one. We've got to remember that Bill loves to, to talk about something we already know about and then use that to teach us something new. We saw him do it with a great ocean liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck. Here he does it by talking about a business inventory, assuming that you and I know something about a business inventory. And he's going to use that example then to tell us how to do our own personal inventory. The other thing we've got to always remember about him he repeats himself quite often, but he finds a different word which means the same thing. And seeing that, I think it's going to be amazing how simple this step four really is if we do it the way the big book says to do it. So let's just kind of relax. Let's just kind of sit back and see if we can't see how simple this thing is. And if we can't see where there's nothing to be afraid of in this thing at all. He starts out first by making a comparison, which he loves to do. He said, therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. And immediately he goes to business. He says, a business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Now, I think you and I could probably recognize the fact if we had a business selling ladies' purses, men's watches, bicycles, whatever, it doesn't make any difference. If we didn't go in there and inventory once in a while, and by the way, inventory is defined as a written list of items, if we didn't go in there and inventory in our business, we wouldn't know what's been stolen out of the store we didn't get paid for. 
we wouldn't know what's been sold and we need to reorder new stock to replace it. We wouldn't know what's become damaged and unsaleable and nobody wants to buy it. It's sitting there taking up valuable floor space, valuable cabinet space, display case. We're probably paying interest on borrowed money on it. It sits there day after day after day after day and nobody wants to buy it. We wouldn't know what's become out of style and people aren't interested in, in buying those kind of items. And if we didn't inventory in, our, in the business, we probably eventually would end up going broke. I think everybody could see that. Okay, in our personal lives, we have a business too. And our business is the most important business in the world to us. It's a business of finding a way to live. Where not only can we be sober, but we can have a little peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And if we don't inventory in our personal business of staying sober, then we're probably going to go broke too. And going broke for us is simply going back to drinking. So whether we're dealing with a business inventory or a personal inventory, if we don't do it, we're probably going to go broke. Now then, he says, and we're going to put a little picture up here on the screen again, and you've got one that will match it. And we're going to take a few key words out of the big book, and we're going to put them up here on this screen as we look at them. He says, a business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. And then he says, taking a commercial inventory. Now, that burned him. He could have said business again. But he don't like to repeat himself twice. Have you guys got that sheet in your thing? I don't see it in this one I've got up here. Where is it? Yeah, there it is. We call it inventory comparison. Okay, we're going to take a few key words now from this business inventory and list them up here on the board. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding. We're putting fact-finding on the board. And a fact-facing process. And we're putting fact-facing on the board. It is an effort to discover the truth. And we're putting truth on the board about the stock in trade. And we're putting stock in trade on the board. Now, the stock in trade is what's in there for sale. The ladies' purses, the men's watches, the bicycles, or whatever. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods. And we're putting damaged or unsaleable goods on the board to get rid of them promptly and without regret. And we're putting get rid of them promptly and without regret on the board. In other words, in the business inventory, we're going to try to find the facts when we find them, we're going to try to face the facts. We're trying to discover the truth about the stock in trade. We're trying to disclose the damaged and unsaleable goods. Now, the good items don't cause us to go broke. The damaged and unsaleable items cause us to go broke. When we find them, we're going to try to get rid of them promptly and without regret. And he said, if the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. In other words, he's going to have to be just as honest as he possibly can. And once in a while, he'll try to fool himself. He or she, whichever the case might be. They might say, well, the reason these ladies don't want to buy these purses is they just don't understand what they really need. They made a decision to buy them. They hate to admit they're wrong, and they may keep them in there much longer than they should. And if they do, it's going to cost them money day after day after day. So they've got to be truthful with this inventory. Now, is there anybody in here that would have any problem with that statement he's just made about a business inventory? 
We're going to try to find the facts. When we find them, we're going to face them. We're trying to discover the truth about the stock in trade. We're looking for damaged and unsaleable goods. When we get rid of them, we're going to, or when we find them, we're going to get rid of them promptly and without regret. You can't put new items in there until the old items are gone. So when we find them, we got to get them out of there so we can put new stuff back in there. Anybody got any problem with that? Okay, now watch it. He wrote a step for us and used a series of words, which means basically the same thing as these words up here. In our fourth step, he said we made a searching. And we're putting searching under the personal side, straight across from fact-finding. I mean the same thing. To find the facts, to search out the facts. We made a searching and fearless. And we're putting fearless straight across from fact-facing. To face those things as they really are, to fearlessly look at them. We made a searching and fearless moral. And there's where we got in trouble. We said, oh, shit, there it is. There's that list of dirty, filthy, nasty items. And we don't want to look at them. We sure as hell don't want to show them to somebody else later on in step five. Now, I'm not sure what all Bill Wilson knew, but, but one thing I am sure of, this guy understood the English language. And I think if he had wanted you and I to make a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items, I think he would have said we made a searching and fearless amoral or immoral inventory of ourselves, and he didn't say that. He said moral. Bugged us and bugged us and bugged us. Finally, back to the dictionary. You know what moral stands for? Truth. Things as they really are. The right and wrong of any given situation. So moral and truth mean identically the same thing. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of what? Of ourselves. We're the only stock in trade that we have in this business to stay sober. Nobody else can make us drink. And nobody else can make us sober. We decide whether we're going to drink or not. So as I make this searching and fearless moral inventory of myself, I'm going to look right up here in my little head, and I'm going to try to find those things that block me off from carrying out the decision I made in step three. And as we talked about in step three, there are three common manifestations of self that blocks God out, and they're always present in every selfish, self-centered human being. One is resentments, one is fears, and one is the guilt associated with the people we've hurt in the past. So what I'm going to do is I make this searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. The part of me that causes me to drink or not drink will be my thinking process, and I'm going to find those flawed thinking processes that block me off from God, and when I find them, I'm going to try to get rid of them promptly and without regret. And all selfish, self-centered people will display these same three common manifestations of self. Resentment, fear, guilt, and remorse. Now, I like to look at my mind up here. as just a little bitty store, not very much. A little quick trip. It's not as big as a 7-Eleven, a get-and-go or come-and-get-it or whatever you want to call it. Just a little bitty store. Now, up here in my store, I have some display cases over here, and they're filled with resentments. Damn him. Damn her. By God, I'll show them. They're not going to treat me that way. The next time they do that, I'll do this. I'll put it going on and on and on and on and on. God can't get in my mind. He is very effectively blocked out by those resentments. 
If I want God to direct that part of my thinking, I must do something about the removal of those resentments, and then and only then can God's thinking come into my mind. You know, God told the human race, He said, I love you enough that I'll let you live out there on self-will until you die. He said, I'll never take it back from you. You're going to have to give it back to me, and I can't give it back to him as long as my mind is filled with resentments. The people, the places, the things I resent, they are controlling my thinking. They are directing my thinking. And if they do, God can't. It's just that simple. Over here on this side of my store, I've got a little file cabinet, and it's filled with fear. Oh, my God. What's she going to do when she finds out about this one? Oh, my God, what's the banker going to do when that check gets in there? He's already told me he's going to file on me the next time. Oh, my God, what is the boss going to find out when he finds out? What's he going to Oh, my God, and on and on and on and on. You know, that file cabinet's already full. God can't get in there. He's very effectively blocked out by my fears. Back here in the back of my store, I've got a little storage room. And it's filled with guilt and remorse associated with the people I've heard in the past. We're not drunken bums. We've got a conscience. And as long as that storeroom back there is filled with guilt and remorse associated with those things from the past, God can't get in there either. He's very effectively blocked out. So if I want God to direct my thinking, I'm going to have to do something about the damaged and unsaleable thoughts that very effectively keep God blocked out of my mind. Resentments, fears, and guilt, and remorse. And thank God our book is going to show us a very simple way to look at these things, to see the truth behind them, a way to get rid of them, and the greatest thing of all, a way to keep them from coming back in the future. And if I can get those things out of my head, then God can direct my mind. But until he, till I get them out of there, God can't. The things I resent, the fears, the guilt, the remorse, they control my thinking for me, and God can't. It's just that simple. Look at what he says. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly, truthfully, morally. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways of what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we've been not only mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. When a spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. Now before we set resentments on paper, let's look at that word. If we don't understand it the way the writer understood it, the information is going to be flawed information. The word resentment comes from two old, old words. R-E. When you see R-E in front of another word, it always means to do again, to repeat, to do over, to repaint, replay, rebuild, always means to do again. The last part of that word, sitment, <clears throat> comes from an old word called centiri, which means to feel. So the word resentment means to feel again, to feel again. Okay, in the scheme of life, I'm going along fat, dumb, and happy. And somebody who is sick in self, in the social instinct, security instinct, or sex instinct, they're sick in self and they do something to me. 
that hurts one of my basic instincts of life. Maybe they threaten my, my social instinct in some way. Maybe they threaten my self-esteem. Maybe they threaten a personal relationship. Maybe they threaten my security. Perhaps they rip me off. Maybe they threaten my sex life. And when they do that to me, that's not a resentment on their part. That's a wrong for doing so. It doesn't become a resentment until I go off in the other room or I go home that evening and sit down in my easy chair and I replay that thing in my mind. And as I replay that thing in my mind, I feel the pain the second time. I refeel that thing. And after a while, I sat there and I play it over again. Now, the stupidity in it is that they hurt me the first time, but now I'm sitting there doing it to myself. They're not even here now. They're clear across town. And I found out one thing about my resentments. I'm not always too honest with myself. As I replay that resentment and feel the pain the second time, I tend to distort the picture just a little bit. I tend to make what they did a little bit worse and what I did a little bit less and the pain just a little bit deeper. And let me sit there and play it over and over and over and over. It no longer resembles the truth at all because I distort it each time as I play it. You know, I, I compare these resentments to, uh, to a good football game. Back in our part of the country, we love football, and you guys love it out here too. And sometimes in a football game, you'll see one of those guys get hurt real bad. You know, maybe they tackle him and just turn him upside down and falls on his head, and his legs go one way and his arms another way, and, and you can tell that he's really hurt when you see him hit the ground. Now, one of two things is going to happen. The football game is just like the game of life. It's going to go on. You can't stop it. When this guy's hurt, one or two things are going to happen. They're going to run out there and check him out. And if he's not hurt too bad, they'll pump a little air into him, get him up, and the game starts again. But if he's hurt bad, they'll drag him off to the side, put somebody in his place, and the football game starts again. Now, the announcer up in the booth... He's got a resentment machine. Because after a while he says, let's look at that again. And this time it's in slow motion, living color. You can see the expression of pain on his face. And it looks twice as bad this time as it did the first time. And after a while the announcer says, let's look at that again. Now, the game's been going on for 15 minutes, and the announcer's sitting over here bouncing this guy up and down, up and down, up and down off the ground. We alcoholics have up here in our head a resentment replay machine. We get I guess everybody's got one, but surely we alcoholics have. We get up early in the morning. We clean the lens on it because we don't want to miss anything all day long. We tune it up in living color. We leave the house and we shine it on everything and everybody all day long. And we record all those things they do to us that are bad. Then we go home and sit down in our easy chair in the evening, replay it in our head, make ourselves sick, and blame it on other people. Once in a while we have a bad day. 
Once in a while, we've got those lens clean. We've got that sucker tuned up. We're shining there on the world all day, and they won't do anything to us bad. That's a bad day. We've got day. nothing to record. That's a bad, bad day for an alcoholic. You know what we record those days? By God, we record what they're thinking. That's what we do. <laughs> We don't ever record anything good, only the bad stuff. Is there any way God can enter a minefield with that kind of crap? No way can God enter a minefield with that kind of crap. Now, the reason we love those resentments so well is if you take a resentment and you keep throwing it out there and throwing it out there and throwing it out there, after a while it turns around and it comes back at you. And it comes back at you as self-resentment. And we can't stand self-resentment. So after a while, self-resentment turns into self-pity. And my God, we alcoholics love self-pity. We love to get up in the morning, put his on as a cloak of dignity. We go out the door and we say, here I come, me no world, just do it to me. I know you're waiting for me out there. You're going to get me. It's a sick, sick way to build your ego. After all, if you're important enough and all the rest of the world's picking on you, you must really be somebody. So if we want God to direct our thinking, we're going to have to do something about getting rid of those resentments. Because as long as we've got them in our mind, then whoever, whatever we're resenting is controlling the way we think. And if they control the way they think, we think, they control our decisions, they control our actions, and we very effectively give them control of our lives. I didn't know that until I took this inventory. I thought you were supposed to have resentments. I knew that everybody had them, but I didn't know I was letting other people control me through my resentments toward them. Thank God I've learned that. Now, our book is getting ready to show us just exactly how to look at those resentments, how to see the truth behind them, how to get rid of them, and how to keep them from coming back in the future. Then God can control that particular part of our mind. Joe? If you look at page 65, you notice that the Page 65, the inventory process is already filled out. Weren't quite sure how he filled that out. But I do know that we're taught to read from left to right and to do things from left to right. And so I set about to do this inventory from left to right. Didn't have any, I didn't read the instructions. Just going to do the inventory. And then I looked at the first one and said, well, write down, I'm resentful at Mr. Brown. So I write down his name. And then I change my mind and go to the second column, who, the cause, and I write down the reason why I'm mad at that person. And then I change my mind again and go to the third column of what part of self was affected, and I didn't understand that. And then I thought about that a long time. And I said, well, I'll go back to Mrs. Jones, and I wrote down Mrs. Jones, changed my mind again and went to the cause. You can see what happens after a period of time. If your mind is like mine, after a while it just says tilt. <laughs> and you say to yourself, oh, heck, they don't want that anyhow. What they want is my whole life story. So we just skip over that page 65 as if it didn't mean anything. Well, Bill didn't put anything in this book that, that didn't mean something. He intended for us to do that inventory just the way it's laid out. But the instructions are over here on page 64. And if we look at the instructions and follow them, we'll be able to follow this inventory real easy. Now, let us emphasize that the inventory form you have in your handout sheet, the one we're going to put up here on the board, is not a new inventory. We're not trying to bring something else into AA. The first three columns that you have on your handout sheet will be page 65 in the blank form. 
One column says, I'm resentful at. The next says, the cause. And the next says, affects my. So what we're going to look at now, disregard the last two columns for the time being. Uh, we'll use them a little later on as we get into further into the inventory. So what you really got is page 65 in the blank form. And we, in turn, are going to see the instructions on how to fill them out. So we think the way to fill out these forms is from top to bottom, one column at a time, from top, top to bottom. For instance, it says, in dealing with resentment, we set them on paper. Well, we got our paper here, now we're ready. The next instruction says we, uh, we listed people, institutions, or principal of whom we are angry, period. We stop right there, and we go to the first column. And simply, we write down the people. We all know who we resent the that. We write down the institutions, places like the federal government or the post office or the library or the, the school system or the IRS or the institution that we're angry at. Ex-wives and ex-husbands and all those people. Principals with whom we're angry at. Simply write them out, going from top to bottom, one column at a time, all the way down, all the things that we resent the that. You know, while we got one thing and one thing only on our mind, let's go from top to bottom. Let's make our list of resentments. He talks about the people and institutions who we're mad at. We, that's self-explanatory. Principles are those old, old guiding, I hate to use the word laws, I can't think of anything any better, that I used to hear all my life that I really did resent. The Ten Commandments are a set of principles. And I certainly didn't want to hear anything about the Ten Commandments when I'm out there drinking. I'm breaking practically all of them. Uh, maybe one I didn't, but I could have when I was drunk. I don't know. Another old principle I hated is what goes up must come down. I didn't care for that. <laughs> Another one is what you give out and what you get back. Another one are there are no free rides. You'll pay for whatever you receive. And my dad used to use one on me that I hated then. Don't really like it now. He said, son, when you lay down with dogs, you get fleas on you every time. You know? <laughs> old, old principles that were contrary to our style of living. Now, what could be more simple than to list first the people we're upset with, we're resentful at, then the institutions we're resentful at, then the principles we're resentful toward. I've never known an alcoholic yet. They did not know just exactly who and what by God we're mad at. We sat around and talked about it for hours and hours in bars. All we got to do is take it out of our mind, put it down in column one. And when you do that, I think you'll be amazed at what comes out of this. They came to me and they said, make a list of your resentments. And I said, I don't have any. And they said, oh, surely you've got one or two. Maybe you don't understand what a resentment is. And they explained to me it was the refeeling of old pains, old hurts, old angers. And I said, oh, yeah, I've got a couple of those. They said, well, put them down on a sheet of paper. Be sure and leave some space with them in between them, like page 65 shows. So I took a regular size sheet of paper, and I began to list resentments. And the next thing I knew, that two or three had turned into about eight of them. I reached over and got another sheet of paper. The next thing I knew, I had eight on that. And I got another sheet of paper, and I and for, you know, before I got through, I had about 152 of them. I said, man, you matter in hell at everything. <laughs> I did not know that. You can only see one resentment at a time in your head. I don't think any of us will ever realize how many resentments we really do have, how much they control and dominate our thinking, and we'll put it until we put them all down on a sheet of paper and see them in their entirety for the first time. 
Now, we made a decision in step three to let God direct our thinking. If we got that many resentments, then they direct our thinking and God can. It's just that simple. Fill out column one. I learned something very valuable about me. How many resentments I really do have. How much they control and dominate my thinking. And he says from it, the resentment. You know, it sends all forms of spiritual disease. When we don't just get mad with one thing. When we get resentful, we're resentful everywhere. That's why we end up with so many resentments on the sheet. So in the first column, we just simply write down, leaving that space is very, very important. Mr. Brown, Miss Jones, the employer, and the wife. All those people, places, institutions with whom we're angry. Now let's look at the second instruction. I'm sure that Bill had more than four. He probably just didn't want to use any more space in the book. He just listed four of them there. He said, we asked ourselves why we were angry, period. We go to the second column under the cause and look at the second column. He only uses four or five words to describe the cause. No long dissertations, don't have to write no essays, just four or five words to describe the cause. Well, why is he mad at Mr. Brown? Well, his attention to my wife. Told my wife of my mistress. Brown may get my job at the office. Boy, I don't even know Mr. Brown. I'm already mad at him myself. <laughs> He's mad at Mrs. Jones. Well, why? Well, she's a nut. She snubbed me. She committed her husband for drinking. But his best drinking buddy in the insane asylum. Yeah. That's what she did. He's my friend, and she's a gossip. Now, he's really upset with his employer. Why? Well, he's unreasonable and unjust and overbearing. Probably said, Bill, where were you all day Monday? Anyhow, how come you're not on the job? <laughs> Threatens to fire me for drinking and patting my expense account. A well, very that's unreasonable as hell, isn't it? Very narrow-minded individual. Now, he's really upset with his wife. Well, why? Well, she misunderstands and she nags. And she likes old Brown. And she wants the house put in her name. <laughs> well, you start trying all that together, it's time to get upset a little bit. But simplicity is the key. Just four or five words describe the cause. Put it down beside each name, top to bottom, all the way down. For a particular name, there may be only one cause. For there may be multiple causes, as he's shown here. We just very simply put them down in column two. Not only do we know who we're mad at, but we know just exactly why we're mad at them, too. All we got to do is take it out of her head, put it down on this sheet of paper. I filled out the second column. I learned something very, very valuable. I begin to see it's really not them I'm mad at. It's what they've done to me that's got me upset. You know, I can take Mr. Brown out of here, put Mr. Green in, and I'm just as mad at Green if he does the same thing. I take Miss Jones out of here and put Mrs. Smith in here. I'd be just as mad at Smith as I am Jones if she did the same thing. I begin to realize it's not them that I'm really upset with. It's what they've done to me that's got me upset. Now, the reason that's important is I'm getting ready now to start out on a lifetime process of developing the best possible relationship that I can with the world and everybody in it so I can have maximum peace of mind Part of that relationship is later on, I'm going to ask a bunch of people to forgive me for what I've done, but by the same token, I'm going to have to also forgive people for what they've done. And part of the forgiving starts right here in column two, when I begin to realize it's not them that's got me upset, it's what they've done to me that's got me upset. Very valuable information. Now let's see the third column. Uh, earlier today, Charlie went over those basic instincts of life, talked about them quite a bit before we did step three. We'll see if you can see those words now. He said, in most cases, it's found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened, so we were sore, we were burned up. 
on our grudge list, we set options to each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal sex relations, which had been interfered with? We were usually as definite as this example. I'm not going to get upset with another human being unless they've done something to threaten one of my basic instincts of life. If you threaten my social instinct, self-esteem, personal relationships, etc., that upsets me. If you threaten my security, that upsets me. If you threaten my sex life, that upsets me. I can't get upset unless one of those basic instincts of life has been threatened. So beside of each cause, I write down what part of self is affected here. Let's look at Bill's example. He's mad at Mr. Brown because he's attention to my wife. Well, that's a threat to his sex relations. You know, if Brown gets to fooling around his wife and she finds out Brown's better than he is, he may, he may lose out at home. It's also a threat to his self-esteem. What are the people going to think about me if my wife gets to fooling around with Brown and it becomes common knowledge in the neighborhood? He's mad at Brown because he told my mister, my wife and my mistress. Now, boy, that's a threat to sex relations. <laughs> as soon as the wife finds out about it, she cuts him off at home. Then she goes over there and raises hell with a mistress, and he's cut off over there too. No sex relations at all. It's a threat to his self-esteem. Now, here we are living in the neighborhood, going to work every day, supporting our wife and children like a fellow ought to, paying our taxes like a good citizen, taking our Boy Scouts out on Saturday afternoon, teaching Sunday school on Sunday morning, and all of a sudden this story about me, my wife, Brown, and my mistress becomes neighborhood gossip. Now, if you don't think that's a threat to your self-esteem, you ask Jimmy Swaggart, you ask Jimmy Baker, and you ask that last guy that was up in the White House, he'd tell you about that too. Real threat to your self-esteem. Bill C. He's upset. He's upset with Brown because Brown may get his job at the office. Well, that's a threat to his security if Brown gets his job. It's also a threat to his self-esteem. What are other people going to think about me if Brown undercuts me and takes my job away from me? Very carefully, we do that. As I filled out the third column, I think I might have learned the most valuable thing I ever learned in the third column. For the first time in my life, I saw where anger comes from. I've always had a problem with anger. And I've always acted and reacted with anger, do something that hurts other people. I'd be ashamed of it, and I'd say, I'll never do that again, and turn right around and do it over and over and over and over and over. You can't do anything about a problem until you understand the problem. I never knew where anger came from. I thought it was just one of those feelings that flitted into your mind that you could do nothing about it. Today I realize anger comes from a threat to one of the basic instincts of life. And it's how I choose to react to that threat which is going to determine whether I get angry or not. Now, this lady I'm married to, she's a... Uh, if there's such a thing as a black belt, Alan, she's a great woman. I love her deeply. She's been uh, She's got 34 years in the Alan program. But like all human beings, once in a while she gets sick himself. Now, Alan don't like to admit that, but they do once in a while. And she'll say or do something to me that threatens one of my basic instincts of life. Now, if my instincts are under control, and if my relationship with God is right, I find them able to say, well, the poor old thing, they're sick just like we are. They can't help it any more than we can, and it'll just slide off of my back and won't bother me at all. Now, two weeks from now, the same lady does the same identical thing. 
Only this day, my relationship with God's not quite right. My instincts are a little bit out of kelter, and I react with anger, and I romp, and I stomp, and I raise hell with Barbara and everybody around me all day long. Same lady did the same thing. But I choose to react to it in an entirely different manner. Thank God I've learned that. Because you see, I can't do anything about Barbara. I can't do anything about any other human being on earth. But I can do something about my reaction to them. And if I don't have to get angry and upset, I'm in much less chance of drinking than I would be before this process started. Very valuable information. I've learned three things just by filling out this sheet. First column, I've learned how resentful I really am. How much they control and dominate my thinking. If they do, God can't. Second column, I've learned it's not really them I'm resentful at. It's what they've done to me that's got me resentful. Third column, I've learned it's not even what they've done that's got me resentful. It's how I have chosen to react to it based upon my relationship with God and whether my instincts are under control or not. Very valuable information. Now, we're going to, we're going to put a couple names up here just to give you an example of how simple this really is. We're going to take a couple from mine and maybe one or two from Joe's inventory. We're not going to do them all, though. On my inventory sheet, the uh, the first name I had in column one was this lady named Barbara. And I love her today. And I'll guarantee you about 34 years, ago, 34 years ago, I hated this woman with a purple passion. If there had been any way that I could have gotten rid of her without having to go to penitentiary over it, I damn sure would have done it. I used to lay awake at night fantasizing. Now, tomorrow morning when she gets up and goes to work, and I always believed her being self-supporting through her own contribution, so she went to work. And on the way, and then I fantasized, now on the way to work, she's going to get run over by a big semi-truck. And it's not going to be just any trucking company, it's going to be a very affluent trucking company. And they're going to kill her, and I'm going to sue them. And not only do I get rid of her, but I come out with a couple million dollars out of this thing. You Al-Anons are not the only people that fantasize. We alcoholics did it too. The second name on my list was the Internal Revenue Service. Now, if you want to see a guy come apart, you just mentioned the Internal Revenue Service. And immediately I started jumping up and down, frothing at the mouth, cussing and raising hell with everything that God I hated those people. Joe, who's, who was on first one on your list? Oh, Rose. Was she one of the two that she's married to seven times? She she number one four times. Oh, Rose. Okay. <laughs> That's how simple column one is. That's just how simple column one is. Column two. Why am I so upset with Barbara? Well, she had the audacity to file for divorce three times the last year before she went to Al-Anon. She's spending more money on lawyers and divorces than I'm spending on drinking and everything else. And I really had it in for her for doing that. Filing for three divorces within one year. Isn't that something? Why am I so upset with the Internal Revenue Service? Well, hell, they're trying to put me in jail. That's why I'm upset with them. Matter in hell at them. Joe, how come you're so upset with Rose? You had an affair with another man. Had an affair with another man. That's That's how simple column two is. Column three. Which part of self is affected by Barbara filing for divorce? 
three times within one year. Is that a threat to my self-esteem? Oh, yeah. What's the neighbors going to think about this now? A threat to my personal relationships? Certainly she's going to take the kids and she's going to go. Is it a threat to my security? Well, you better bet it is. Whatever little we got left, she's going to get it all when she leaves. Is it a threat to my sex life? Yeah, she's not going to let me have any after we get a divorce. You know? Just wipe me out straight across the board. Internal Revenue Service trying to put me in jail. Is that a threat to my self-esteem? Sure. What are people going to think about me if I end up in the hoose with this deal? Threat to my personal relationships? Yeah, they're not going to let my wife and children have anything to do with me, but I'm in jail. Is it a threat to my security? Oh, yeah. By the time they get through finding me and everything, they'll take it all. Is it a threat to my sex life? With the kind I'd like to have, yeah. There there may be some in there I don't want. The kind I'd like to have, you betcha it's a threat to it. Old Rose, old Rose having an affair with another with another man. Is that a threat to Joe's self-esteem? Oh, what's people going to think of him now? He can't even keep his own wife at home. A threat to his security? I never look because I never know for sure what he's going to put up there. Is it a threat to his security? Sure, he's going to have to go to work now. That woman's been supporting him for the last ten years. Threat to his sex life? Well, you betcha it is. That's how simple column three really is. It doesn't take very long to fill this out. You can go home and sit down and into it in a couple hours. You can have this part of the inventory done. A couple hours or even less. Now that we filled it out, now that we got the sheet done, let's see what we're going to do with it now. It says that when we uh, we went back through our lives, nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and his people were often quite wrong. Well, I knew that all along. <laughs> to conclude that others were wrong as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Now, it's plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. I read that last statement, and I stopped, and I tried to look back in my life and see how much time I've actually squandered in resentments. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know about me. When I've got a good resentment churning around up here in my head, I'm pretty well paralyzed from doing anything worthwhile. All I want to do is just sit there and play that over and over and over and over and over again. One of my favorite things that I used to love to do when I was still drinking was get up early in the morning, have a drink of whiskey and a cup of coffee, and turn on my resentment replay machine (laughs) and replay what she did to me yesterday, replay what he did to me last week, replay what that damn policeman did to me a month ago, replay what that boss did to me a year ago, Replay what that neighbor did to me five, five, play, play, replay, 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 replay. It took me just about an hour to run through that tape. I loved every moment of it. When that tape would run out, I'd have another drink of whiskey and another cup of coffee, and I would turn on my get-even machine. 
Yeah, now by God, the next time she does that, I'm going to do this, she'll say that, and suckle. I'm going to put it, they're not going to treat me that way. took at least an hour to run through the get-even machine. I've squandered literally thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in resentments. When I got to AA, I found out I was still doing the same thing. I just wasn't taking the drink of whiskey. I was getting up, having a cup of coffee, turn on my resentment replay machine, run it for an hour, another cup of coffee, turn on my get-even machine, and I was doing the same thing in AA that I was doing when I was out there drinking. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I reached a point in my life where I don't have a hell of a lot of time left. For the first time in my life, I'm sober, I'm peaceful, I'm happy, and I'm free. I don't resent anything or anybody. I didn't know you could be sober and feel as good as I feel today up here in my head. Not my body, but in my head. What little time I've got left, I'll be damned if I'm going to waste any more of it in resentments when I don't have to. They block me off from God. They block me off from my fellow human beings. They block me off from any good feelings of myself. And as far as I can tell, they've never made me a nickel. Never made any money from them. Never straightened up another relationship with another human being. Only made them worse and worse and worse and made me sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. And I'm not going to waste what little time I've got left. Because I found a way that I don't have to do that anymore. That's a bad deal, wasting time, squandering time in resentments. But that's not the worst thing. Here's the worst thing. But with the alcoholics who hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off in the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns when we drink again, and with us to drink is to die. There's the worst thing about a resentment. When we got a good resentment churning around in our head, we're blocked off from anything good. We're blocked off from God. We're blocked off from our fellow human beings. We're blocked off from good feelings. We don't feel good. And our mind is going to feel bad just so long. And it's going to start searching for relief. And it's going to start remembering the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a couple of drinks. Next thing you know, we become insane. We believe it's okay to drink. And we drink again. And with us to drink is to die. I've seen more alcoholics get drunk over resentments than I have anything else in AA. They absolutely kill us. So that's why we've got to get rid of them. The book says if we were to live... Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.